This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Uh, this week we're going to cover a multitude of topics. We're going to talk about uh, gender politics and how that's uh, being just taking over uh, progressive parties, not least the Labour leadership contest. That's with Janice Turner. Matthew Powis is here to talk about the government and how it is whatever you want it to be, at least for now. But first, Jason Stein, a former special advisor in the Conservative government, on the problem with ethics, and in particular the ethics unit. The shadowy Whitehall unit, which oversees pesky special advisors and clumsy ministers, is set for an upgrade. The all-powerful propriety and ethics unit is opaque, nearly impossible to navigate or contact, and can drive politicians and their aides around the bend. But here's the tricky bit. It's set up to work exactly like that. So this is fascinating, actually, because this is one of these organisations in Whitehall that nobody really knows anything about, which makes it instantly fascinating. As you were saying, it's been in the news uh, this week because of a lot of talk about bullying, both by cabinet ministers and by special advisers, and the role in what is the system set up to uh, help those who, who are bullied or treated badly by the system. Well, there isn't much of a system, but the system that is in place is called the Prajan Ethics Unit, and it is effectively a firewall between the Prime Minister and everything annoying that special advisors <laughs> and ministers cock up or try to cock up. Every appointment to an arm's length body uh, is sort of scrutinised for propriety and, you know, uh, to make sure that the appointments are fit for purpose. But this week it's been announced that a new person is going to be hired to oversee special advisors. Now the problem is the reason nothing has ever been done about special advisor welfare pay conditions is because no one has really cared before. The Propriety and Ethics Unit only really cares about the things that the Prime Minister cares about. And pesky special advisors calling to complain that they're not being paid enough, and in many instances they may have a valid complaint. <laughs> Are we talking about your personal experience here, Jason? Well, I'll give you one example of, of a Propriety and Ethics <laughs> Unit that, that, that still annoys me. But a big thing was made in the summer about... Uh, fair pay for fair work. And I was the Department of Work and Pension Special Advisor when Amber Rudd in the first reshuffle was given a slight boost to her job. She was also made the Minister for Women and Equalities. I asked would I be compensated for the hours and hours of extra work that I had to take on. I had a, a second desk in the Department for Education. 
all these extra responsibilities. We've discussed before, and you're on the podcast before. You got another mobile phone, another mobile phone, etc. And I was told, no, there will be no additional compensation. And I just thought, how is it fair to be paid one salary for one job, and then the salary stays the same, yet a load of responsibility was added on? And these are the things that drive special advisors mad. And when you try and contact the propriety and ethics team, it's basically the equivalent of go down to back of a garden shed and retrieve a password that was written on the back of a a, a, a can of paint and dial three and please go on hold and then go and visit this shop where you'll be given another password. <laughs> it is impossible to get an answer on email and impossible to get an answer on the telephone. And if any of these things improve, and these all predated Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, I know it will make the life of special advisors much, much easier. Couldn't you just stormed in? Well, the problem with storming in is you don't necessarily know where they sit. <laughs> so you could end up storming quite valiantly into a few rooms and uh, just disturbing innocent civil servants. They don't have their name, their, their name on the door. They don't have the name on the door. You can never get a mobile number unless you're sort of a favoured special advisor. Do you know advisor. names of who they are? Are they yes, mysterious? It, it, it's led by a very powerful and I'm told pleasant woman named Helen McNamara who I only had the pleasure of meeting once. But very much iron fist and unfortunately for special advisors their welfare and employment rights and pay conditions have never before really been an issue that has bothered the prime minister it's never it's it's never made it into his or her inner circle whereas now it's something that's making front page news and the Propriety and Ethics Unit is looking to respond and is hiring this dedicated civil servant to, in theory, oversee this. I remember in June or July when I was told that there was already a new person who was overseeing all this and, you know, nothing gets done. The, the Times reported allegations against Pretty Patel for, for bullying last yeah. week. The response, as I recall from Downing Street, was that there had been no official complaint. <clears throat> Would that official complaint have gone to the Ethics and Propriety Yes, it would. That, that is exactly what the Proprietary and Ethics Unit yes. is set up yeah. to do. It is to scrutinise the behaviour of ministers, both in their professional dealings or the you know, decision-making process, but also personal. For a formal complaint to be made, even to get to that stage, you have to probably go through a few hurdles. So I do have some sympathy, though, I must say, with Pretty Patel. I've seen quite a few civil servants complain uh, about ministers speaking quite directly in meetings, for example, and being very clear about what they want or box notes, which are the sort of scribbles from ministers back on submissions from civil servants, being, you know, a bit terse, more work needed, or I didn't need war and peace, or, <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a genuine one. And sometimes we, we do need to be a bit more thick-skinned about things. Do you, How much then do you agree with Dominic Cummings? And his whole uh, shtick is, this is a tough job, man up, you know, this is, if you've got problems in your private life, this isn't the game for you, pull yourselves together. I, I don't agree with all of that, but where I do agree, look, they are really hard jobs and their workload is brutal and they have an enormous effect on your personal life. However, the trade-off is they're very privileged jobs. You are able to do really important work in a very privileged position and also go on to do more important things. So I do have uh, some sympathy with Dom for wanting to sort of really use the stick on special advisors. Where I don't have sympathy is all people in employment have the right to have their pay fairly reviewed, to have any questions about HR that they have answered properly, to be told basic things like, do we have a pension? And if so, what is it worth? And if I get pregnant, what are my maternity rights? And what rights do I have in terms of, of losing my job or being dismissed or being asked to do other jobs? Broadly, 
look, I, I think special advisors are very lucky, and I know a lot of people won't sympathise with calls for more pay for political aides, but they are, you know, in comparison to private sector, not the best paid jobs. I was really struck by um, Dominic Cummings' idea of having SPAD school at f- late on a Friday evening to prevent anybody going home, just at the point at which you're thinking, oh, maybe a beer, maybe see my family, maybe put my kids to bed for once. They are privileged jobs, but... How are people who have other commitments or actually want a, a human life ever going to take these jobs? Well, the funny thing is that when someone did ask that in the first ever Friday Spad School, Dom did suggest we could do it on a Saturday morning instead, <laughs> if, that, if that was more convenient for people. So Spad School under Gavin Barwell used to be Friday, 3pm every second Friday. The problem is no one would ever go. <laughs> and that was one of the problems that Dom inherited, and he really cracked down on this. He certainly ruined Friday What lunch. happens at Spad School? Is yeah, it like right. Fight Club? You know, so, you don't talk about well, Spad no, School. Well, no, I mean, everyone does talk about it. I mean, <laughs> ends up in the Saturday and Sunday newspapers every week. But mm. everyone marches in, gets marched up to, I think it's called the drawing room, and the sort of the auditorium is set. Everyone takes their seat and Dom usually walks in. The room falls pretty silent and it's basically... How appalling. Are there drinks? Uh, the first one I ever went to, there were drinks. <laughs> Snacks? And actually, the, a Wednesday spad school also started when I was in government and they did always serve pizza. Pizza was was much appreciated. Do you get anything out of it, apart from Dom's sort of slightly funny speech about how everyone should be more like the Fonz or whatever it was, was, immediately designed to be leaked to the papers? What is the point of keeping everybody back late on a Friday? Mm. Actually, at first, in particular, they were genuinely useful because he would actually come with a list of actions that you more or less needed to do immediately, get this to me by close of play Monday, work over the weekend, get this done. And he did set quite a lot of direction for special advisors and would empower people to go back to the departments and say, look, Downing Street has directly told me we did this. I remember he called one at 6.55 on a Wednesday morning or 7.55 on a Wednesday morning. And it was like, I need, yeah, morning. I need all this done today. And it was a very quick meeting. And actually, it is probably a good way. It's, it, it's the spad equivalent of calling Cobra. You basically get everyone in the room and say, I need this done, come back to your department and berate people till it's done. What about the impact that all this has on the overall calibre and type of people who will take on these jobs? Because we've talked before a lot about the importance of special advisors, the political eyes and ears, political brains. You know, there's one or two of them in each department where there could be thousands of civil servants. And yet, if the only people who can do those jobs are either people who don't have a family or never want to see them and can drop everything at the drop of a hat and are the sort of slightly giddy young people who get excited about being summoned by Dominic Cummings at strange hours of the day, doesn't that end up having an impact on the way the government is run? Definitely. It means that generally special advisors are younger. The typical profile for a special advisor is sort of 25 to 32 uh, as you say, people do you who... Do you think that's changed? At the risk of sounding like an old fart, when I, it feels like when I started in the lobby sort of 15 yeah. years ago, special advisors were older. They were, and there weren't many of them. Many of them were, were, were just liked being special advisors. They didn't have ambitions mm. of, of their own. I, I, th- I think it has changed. It's quite shark-infested. What is Dom Cummings actually like, Jason? I mean, does he resemble the press caricature that we have of him? Funny, I found him quite manic, but also quite detailed at the same time. So he would sort of come in, he would bark a load of instructions, he would sort of go through his his philosophy about why he's getting all these instructions out, and you'd all sort of think, this is a bit frantic. But actually, it was a bigger picture part of, we need to get this government ready for no deal, we need to show the European Union that we're serious. 
that will mean uh, we're able to get a deal. And if we don't get a deal, Parliament will block us. And so even though everything felt a bit disparate, actually it was part of a wider strategy. Look, my dealings with him were limited, but I always found him to be pretty honest, pretty direct. You did know where you stood with him. I know a lot of people had a different experience to the one I had. Well, but you, weren't, you weren't frog marched out of number 10. I, no, I, I wasn't frog marched out of Downing Street. <laughs> I'm sure some people may have wanted to at some point, but I never was. But also, Dom also came after a situation which had been pretty poor in terms of contact from the centre because you know the Theresa May government was you know, fighting every day, frankly, to stay alive. So he was able to instantly sort of install more discipline just by being more present. And after all of that, you were happy to have some contact, even if it was shouting at you late on a Friday night? G- no, genuinely I was. And I remember <laughs> remarking to people July and August, actually, it's somewhat easier being a special advisor in this administration, the Boris administration, because you actually know exactly what Number 10 wants. The problem under Theresa May was you had no idea one day whether we were in favour of the customs union or not. And I remember Amber being sent out to do an interview with Nick Robinson and I was talking to Downing Street people and I said, look, she'll probably make the point that a customs union is a sensible compromise. One Downing Street advisor said, no, she can definitely say that. Absolutely fine. She should, you know, she, she should lean into that. She did. And then I got bollocked by another Downing Street special <laughs> advisor because she went too far on the customs union. And you never knew where you stood. And just finally, let's go back to the propriety and ethics unit. It just sounds like it's designed to be as unhelpful as possible, isn't it? It's designed to be as unhelpful Your as possible. Your former colleagues probably shouldn't get their hopes up about this new edition. They shouldn't. The, the most unhelpful encounter I ever had at the propriety and ethics unit was when I was moving from the Treasury to DWP, from a civil servant to a special advisor, and I called the propriety and ethics unit to negotiate my salary. And they said, well, we can only make you a salary offer once you've resigned from your job. I said, but once I've resigned from my job, you can basically offer me anything you want, and I have no choice but to accept it. And they said, yes, exactly. And I resigned maybe, from the Treasury. Not and so incompetent after. Well, no, this is yeah. the point. They are designed, actually, to frustrate people, and that is the great uh, challenge that needs to be squared in this. Thank you for shining a light on it. I, I was, I was going to say we might come back to it one day, but I suspect we won't because it will disappear again and we know yeah. we will ever uh, hear anything again. Uh, let's move on, though. Let's talk about what the government is actually doing or what people think it is doing. This is Matthew Paris. Our new government is a, a sort of political equivalent of a Rorsage test. What, what you see in this sprawl tells us more about you than it does actually about what Boris is trying to do how he's trying to organise things. I I just see a sprawl with a rather absent Prime Minister who has a tendency to duck. The political editor of The Spectator, by contrast, sees a a ruthless and determined power grab by Downing Street, a a tight and muscular cabal. I, I don't think they know where they're going. To others, it's very clear where they're going. And I can't remember a time when there was less of a consensus amongst commentators about what was going on what the strategy was, what the purpose was. There's a good piece by William Hague uh, in this morning's press, of course larding the government with with praise in a tactful way, but suggesting that all this centralisation is actually going to generate an awful lot of friction in the end. I had to um, confess, I had to look up what a Warsatch test was, and then I realised I did know. It's, it's, it's sort of inky pictures folded in half, and then you, you can see yeah. what you like. Is it a horse? Is it two dancing rabbits? Or it always what? looks like a pair of hips to me, but that, <laughs> there you see yeah, it tells you exactly. more about it's, me. Exactly. Than, yeah, it all becomes, yeah. you know, do you see a duck or is it a duck or a rabbit? Is, yes. you know, is it, all those pictures. Uh, 
Does it fit when when you told me what it was you wanted to talk about today? I was I did slightly make me think of the early days of the Theresa May Premiership, where people were projecting onto her whatever they thought. You know, she was a hard Brexit. Actually, no, she was a secret Remainer. She was uh, moving to the left. No, she wasn't. She was moving to the right. Are we, is this just not what happens with every new administration? The early days when before anything has happened or gone wrong, people can no. hope what it might be. No, I don't think so. I, I think we got a pretty clear idea with, with John Major right from the start what sort of a centrist Prime Minister he was going to be. Tony Blair, what we saw was what we got. To, to some extent, Gordon Brown. No, I, I, th- I, I agree with you about Theresa May. There was silence and we all wrote onto the silence what we wanted to see in her. It's, in a way, it's the opposite and yet not with Boris Johnson. There's a lot of noise, but we all hear in the noise what we want to hear. Yeah, it's really interesting. Is that your take on it as well, Thomas? I find this government absolutely intriguing, actually. I mean, after the election, it felt with the red wall that, you know, he'd he, he'd won a dragon on the internet and he was wondering whether he could feed it, you know, the north. <laughs> and uh, and now it's like he's he's got this dragon and, and he's wondering what, what his diet is. And so I'm just watching the infrastructure projects and the and the new chancellor with all that money he's going to spend on everything. And, it, and John McDonnell was on Twitter the other day moaning about um, the Tories stealing Labour policies and not stealing just any old Tony Blair policies but stealing Corbynite policies. You know, every every time I look at a, a rail company it's been renationalised. I find it absolutely intriguing what it means for um, the Labour Party. Jason, is there a Boris Johnson slash Dominic Cummings project or is it each day, take each day as it comes, we like that big shiny thing, that's not a terrible idea? And we have to just try and work out over time what it all adds up to. So I think the main thing, the government is basically ruthlessly pragmatic and it will take the path of least resistance where it can in order to basically achieve best outcomes for people. But broadly speaking, I think the plan is quite clear. It's invest in public services, invest in infrastructure and try and develop the UK into some sort of 21st century science hub that can rival Silicon Valley or... And NASA, seemingly, but I think on other issues, ad hoc issues that come up, basically they are, you know, they're pretty pragmatic. I mean, the flyby bailout, if you want to call it a bailout, was was an example of where they confounded expectations of what a typical Conservative government would look like. So I know with businesses who I now work with pretty closely in my in my new role, they do find it quite confusing. You know, where will Downing Street come down on this potential? competition issue where will Downing Street come down on this potential merger issue and I think the answer is always they will view it through the prism of this the red wall seats that they won what is the best outcome for those voters and that will mean that they oscillate one of the things that struck me and yesterday I had lunch with somebody who runs a think tank uh, and they were saying that they they were finding it all quite difficult to get a handle on what what is this government interested in there is no big education reform or health reform or uh, you know university reform which they could be doing now they've got they know they've got four or five years they've got a big majority they could be, there's no big ideas it's all sorts of you know let's we'll pick a fight with the BBC but we don't really know what we're going to do with that we want to scrap the license fee until someone points out that's almost physically impossible because of people have got free view boxes which don't work there's a lot of yeah. sort of bitty bits I think there is a danger for us political commentators it's um, very much in our career interest to uh, to spot directions and discuss directions. And if we don't see clear directions, uh, what we tend to say is there is a plan, but it's a bit of a mystery and we don't know what it is yet. What is not helpful for us is, is the realisation, and it's coming to me now, that there just is no plan at all. No one has any idea. Um, that reflects the 
policy of the, the, the personality of the, the Prime Minister. He is ultimately, if you like him, you would say pragmatic. If you don't, you would say directionless. Are we going to find out a lot more when we see the first budget, though? I mean, where the money's going to go? I mean, that is going to be the key, isn't it? In some ways, people are weary of endless um, churning change, especially things like education. I think a lot of people in the public sector would just appreciate a lot more money to do their jobs, but without a lot of sort of policy changes and, and reverse ferrets about, you know, what on, is on the national curriculum, for example. I mean, the one thing that I would really like to see, and I wonder what if he's going to have the courage to do it, and is social care. I mean, that is the massive subject, and it's so controversial, and it, and it ruined Theresa May's majority, and, and there are so many different views on it. I just wonder whether... You know, what's going to happen on that? I'll place a bet he won't have the courage to do but it. He famously told us on the steps of Downing Street mm. in July last year he had a plan ready to go. Uh, and you can't help thinking that Dom Cummings might be better off directing his energy into solving that rather than yes. picking fights with badly paid junior special advisers. I don't think social care quite gets Dom's intellectual libido going. Is it because the... it's a bit complicated? I don't think it's that. I think there are things that he is intellectually really curious about, science and R&D sort of obsessive over and then there are things where he just thinks he is politically so much more right than people like us who pontificate all day and that is why there's so much money going into policing crime education i think matt's slightly unfair i mean i think reforming the entire immigration system is quite a change and they'll now own that in a way but that's a change they had to do rather than a it's not that Boris Johnson is spent well, a long time from yearning what I gather, to reform Sajid Javid wanted a far more transitional system and what's been written up so I mean they could have taken again a much easier path yeah. so I think there are yeah, they got a lot of criticism for the manifesto being thin right okay and physically it was thin but actually that is probably because we are so used to politicians and parties never delivering a manifesto if every word of that manifesto was delivered which it probably won't be but if it was that's pretty radical court reform immigration reform trade deal with the u with the u.s with the eu these are quite substantial things yeah, but, but janice is right the, the biggest domestic problem facing us as, as a country once we clear away the fog of brexit is social care i mean it's absolutely huge problem dominic must know it's a huge problem uh, he he must have some idea about what the options are. It's very clear what yeah. the options are, and uh, they're all ducking. Well, I mean, he's not the prime minister's only advisor, right? you know. Isn't he? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the impression that he, he likes. To he's give. not the only advisor. Look, I, I don't know what they're going mm. to plan on social care, but you can see why he wouldn't find it very sexy. I mean, the thing about social care, as opposed to education system or or the NHS, is that you only are aware of how totally awful it is until mm. you have elderly parents or you've got old yourself, and so it's a bit grim and it's a bit sort of old people and the smell of urine. And I can see why that it wouldn't ignite him in a Rocket, putting rockets into space. Is much more exciting. Yeah. Then isn't this fundamentally the problem with the Johnson Cummingsization of politics? Mm. That you can't they're running a country now. They're not running a a city or a election campaign. That you can't just focus on the exciting shiny bits. And actually if you're going to leave the country in a better place than you picked it up, tackling social care is one of the biggest mm. and him just saying, well I'm not really interested in that, it's not very exciting. You do, you do have to be careful, though, because once you create something, you own it forever, right? I worked on Universal Credit at the Department of Work and Pensions. Forever, that will be a conservative invention. For right or wrong, it's the conservative's universal credit system. And you know, if you're going to create a new system, you've got to get it 
bloody right. And if it takes a bit longer, oh, it delivers better so outcomes. Long. The plant was ready last summer. Well, we've not had a majority for <laughs> four years or whatever it is. But with, with social care, um, what it really needs is a settlement like the, the NHS in the beginning. It needs to genuinely be a cross-party thing. And obviously that's been completely impossible under you, Corbyn. cross-party, though? Like, who, who do you negotiate? Like, if they tried to negotiate a cross-party deal today... Who do they negotiate with? Well, I'm I'm just coming on to the fact that maybe if Keir Starmer, sensible, rational, or at least, you know, talking about um, an inkblot test, you know, people mm. are really uh, projecting onto Keir Starmer exactly what they want to believe, you know, whether he's going to be, he's a Trojan horse for the right or whether he's, you know, Corbyn, as somebody put it, um, uh, Ed Miliband with a jawline, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, so, but maybe... Somebody he, else put it to me as Ed Miliband uh, without the charisma, which I thought was uh, <laughs> slightly worse. <laughs> Lots of women quite fancy him anyway that, that aside whether he would be somebody that you could negotiate with or, or you know and make some sort of settlement I think, I think there is a hunger among the electorate actually for a bit of people putting down their spears and actually getting on with making the country work it would be an amazing first thing for a new Labour leader to do mm. to do that do it early on and then if it goes wrong you can still blame the government for not implementing it properly um, you've you've brilliantly segued on to our next topic. In a second, Janice Turner's going to talk about uh, gender politics, in particular the Labour leadership contest. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast. I'm still joined in the studio by Jason Stein, Matthew Paris, and this is Janice Turner. Hi, I want to talk about how gender politics has become a kind of insanity which destroys progressive parties. Um, in America, with the Democrats, um, it has become a tinderbox issue. Uh, during the general election. Joe Swinson for the Liberal Democrats was constantly grilled about what is a woman and whether biological sex exists, which one might say was the reason she lost her seat. And now the Labour Party leadership candidates, uh, we now have a situation where two-thirds of the Labour leadership candidates and half of those who are running for deputy have signed the Labour Trans Pledge, which calls for a feminist group called A Woman's Place and an LGB group called uh, LGB Alliance, uh, hateful, and thus pledging to expel thousands of uh, people associated with that or agree with its aims from the party. Given that the pledges that on Islamophobia and anti-Semitism uh, were debated so 
extensively and controversially um, between the parties and within the Labour Party. I just wonder why this pledge, which is to expel dozens of thousands of women from the party, was signed with such alacrity by so many people. This is a contentious issue, and it's one of those that sometimes I think a lot of people don't want to wade into because they mm. know it's so controversial. But let's first of all explain what this pledge is that the Labour candidates, some of them, have right. signed up to. Well, this pledge, let's talk about where it came from to start with. Where it came from absolutely nowhere. It didn't come from uh, LGBT Labour, which had a different pledge, which Keir Starmer signed, which was a lot more moderate. It came from a group which, at the point at that time, had no leaders or names attached to it. And it said a lot of things about reforming the gender recognition Act and recognising self-ID um, within that act and reform. But the two things that it did say, which was to prescribe, basically, two organisations which have set up, and I can't state this more strongly enough, to support existing legislation, um, including the Equality Act of 2010 and the Gender Recognition Act of 20. 2004. It was set up to support existing legislation. It was prescribing these organisations as hateful and therefore all of its members must be expelled. The thing that really was the most astonishing development in this was Lisa Nandy, who a lot of people had enormous high hopes for. Um, very sensible, rational, talked about towns, the left behind, what happened with the Red Wall, Wigan MP, very intelligent woman. And she signed this pledge and she said now, without even really looking at it, so she signed a pledge to expel possibly half the women in the Labour Party. Rebecca Long-Bailey has signed it, Angela Rayner has signed it, uh, other can all the, basically all the women candidates running for leader or deputy leader at a time when the Labour Party, at last after 120 years, is going to elect a woman, have signed this pledge. And so therefore, many feminists in the Labour Party, including me, have got to vote for men for leader and deputy leader in order to defend women's rights and not be expelled from the party. It's the most astonishing paradox in progressive politics that I've ever seen. The Lisa Nandy explanation is extraordinary. She said that she the, the part about describing the groups, did she say give us give her pause for thought. Uh, but she then signed it anyway. <laughs> she then went on to say, I think that pledge cards themselves have become a real problem in British politics. And I think with hindsight, if we could have all signed a pledge card at the beginning to say that we wouldn't sign pledge cards, we'd probably be in a much better place. So she's basically admitting that this sort of uh, slightly noisy, particularly on social media, campaign group mm clobbers you enough for not signing up to their thing so you just sign it and then start thinking about what it all means afterwards. But what does that say about a, a prospective oh, yeah. leader for the party that you carelessly sign away something like the membership of, of half your women members and that it's, you... It's reminding me, although in a, a much more dramatic way of uh, when I was in Parliament and Mrs Thatcher wanted to reform Sunday trading, basically to allow shops to open on a Sunday. All of us MPs got endless things to sign from local churches. We, we got huge amount of correspondence. Lots of the lo local Christians uh, wanted us to promise in, in our own personal manifestos at the next election that we would oppose Sunday trading. We got the impression that, that there was a huge anxiety out there in, in, in the country in the event, partly because so many people had agreed to oppose it, uh, the, the, the bill was lost. But in the event, we got Sunday trading and we discovered that actually most people wanted Sunday trading in the first place. It was on the noisy <laughs> campaign in the yes, first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And pledge cards um, obviously have a track record of going wrong. Before the coalition, the Lib Dems in the run-up to the 2010 election, part of the Lib Dem machine was telling their candidates to sign the pledge to scrap tuition fees, while a different part of the Lib Dems 
Danny Alexander was drawing up the coalition talks document that was going to drop tuition fees. And ultimately, they probably didn't really, they never really came back from that. Janice, your point I thought was really interesting. The, the question of gender politics and trans rights has become a massive row within the left. Yes. It's not a, it's mm. not a left-right issue. <clears throat> no, and, and if you look at the people who support Women's Place and do set it up, you include people like Ruth Sawatka, Kerry Tunks, who are trade unionists, very much on the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party. You also have on the uh, uh, a gay man called Luckland Stewart, one of Corbyn's policy chiefs who helped draw up the last manifesto. The fears about the reform of the Gender Recognition Act and the assertion that biological sex, and I, I, I find it really extraordinary that I even have to say this, Mm -hmm. exists that biological sex is a factor in women's oppression and therefore has to be acknowledged within legislation um, in terms of their privacy and safety has become so controversial and you know there is this sort of purity spiral in America we we, um, we had Elizabeth Warren who not only put her pronouns in her biography on Twitter and I'm wondering actually when that's going to come into Britain, British politics um, she said that all trans women prisoners currently in men's prisons would be put in the female estate even if that even if they had committed uh, sexual offences. Something that was e- echoed unbelievably by Lisa Nandy, who, um, when asked at her hustings about whether uh, she would do this, said that she would put um, somebody who was a paedophile rapist in the women's estate. And this was the moment at which women on in the Labour Party went, what the hell? And I think if Lisa Nandy, who I'm so disappointed in, who I was going to vote for, um, had said this um, before the general election, I don't think she'd have held Wigan. You know, can you imagine her saying in Wigan that she supports putting rapists in women's prisons? It's an extraordinary proposition for a careless and thoughtless proposition for a potential Labour leader to put to the electorate, let alone to party members. There are a wider problem for the left that being seen to keep going on about what, to most people, is an incredibly niche Issue. And this isn't to, this isn't to play down. No, I if you agree. If you're trans and you're you're some no, abuse and discrimination. No, I agree. Totally agree. But there aren't actually even any. I was trying to find some statistics for how many trans people there are in the UK. It's, I think even the Government Equality Office says it might be two hundred to four hundred thousand people. Yes. Which I think is a bit more than the number of farmers there are in the UK. But in terms of you know the scare, the the number of people affected, and yet the left. This has become such a sort of massive issue of purity, which just seems sort of so irrelevant to so many people's lives. Well, the Labour leadership contest was going so well until this moment of that pledge. You know, people in the centre were. You know, it was like a box of chocolates, and you actually could choose between. <laughs> you know, would I vote for um, at the beginning Jess Phillips, who's you know outspoken and feisty, or Keir Starmer, who's more establishment? And you know, everybody had a choice in every single category, whatever your politics in the Labour Party, there seemed to be a choice. And then this pledge came along, which these people carelessly signed without any thought, except Kistam, who's a lawyer and maybe a little bit more um, wary of sort of small print. And therefore, there was a massive red line was drawn for many women in the party, because quite simply, the people they were supposed to vote for had signed a thing saying they should be expelled. So, I mean, that is amazing, isn't it? I wonder if this this is actually not about trans rights at all, but it's, a, it's about the psychology of, of the left and the mm. propensity of, of the left to get involved in absolutely furious internal disputes about things that seem small to other people. I, I can remember years ago on, on the left, you, you'd all argue about whether Trotsky was a good thing or a bad thing. Way back in medieval times, we all argued about consubstantiation and transubstantiation, which means the, the bread and the wine 
at communion, do they actually physically turn into the flesh and blood of Christ or not? You know, the whole column about transubstantiation and the proposition (laughs) that when um, the recitation that all the candidates have to give, including Keir Starmer and so on, that trans women are women, what does that actually mean? Do you mean trans women are women as I believe? I believe trans women are women in a legal sense for most of the time, except in specific circumstances when biological sex matters like privacy, hospital wards, prisons, etc. Or do you believe that trans women are women literally and biologically, which is now what is being said? And you're frowning at me, Matt. No. Because that absolutely is so bizarre. And this and this kind of purity mm. has increased from trans women and women in a legal sense support them and uh, and allow them to live as women, quite right, to being they literally are women. And I'm going to use a word now, I don't, you might edit out, but uh, that, um, that if they have... Uh, uh, still retain male genitalia. That is a female penis, and this is why it's so insane. And it, you know, really, that's yeah. incredible. No, no, this <laughs> I've is... got a female penis. Yes. Wow, because <laughs> you've you've obviously written about this a lot, and you get a lot of grief because of it. I, I, I do get grief, but I also get a lot of support because everywhere I go to parties and so on, or sometimes even in the street, people, women come up to me and go, thank you, because they can't say this stuff. And it is quite insane. I mean, the reason why I write about it isn't because I thought I, I would want to write about this stuff. It's because it's so mad, somebody has to expose how insane it has become. And, uh, you know, and people in the purity spiral of the Labour Party are not going to say these things because they can't, they're frightened. Jason, did this cross your desk when you were... Doing women inequalities. So, uh, when we were at the Women Equalities Office, we were pretty conscious of decisions that need to be made basically within the next year on self-identification. It's the big one. Uh, so we were quite involved in that. The things we tried to get more involved in, because they're less controversial, is just safeguarding the rights of people who have gone through the process and have fully transitioned, had surgery, etc., and making sure that in the workplace and on the streets that they felt safe and felt protected. But it is a a minefield, especially on self-identification. But I would say for Labour, and and I think Tony Blair touched on this point this week, it is not what the people of Bassett Law or Grimsby are concerned about. And I think Janice is right. The more the saliency of this is raised, I think the more people will just think this is mad. And as far as I'm aware, I know what a man is and I know what a woman is. But these things are changing quite rapidly and it is a a minefield. I'm absolutely certain that as a result of this podcast going out people will tweet and email in and pick us all up on something that we've said while meaning well just for the sake of picking a fight and proving that we weren't on top of the latest campaigning note or or whatever but you're right it's a mindset as a result a lot of people don't get involved in it and so it does become dominated by campaign groups that can somehow get otherwise intelligent politicians to sign something that they don't agree with. There was a handbook put out by um, trans activists in America about how to get legislation like self-ID through. And one of the... Uh, they had several tactics that it, for reasons... for how it has gone through in Malta and in Ireland. The first thing they said, and they're speaking to their own people at this point, is avoid all press scrutiny. And that's number one. Then the second thing is to attach self-ID to other pieces of legislation. So in Malta, there was a big corruption case and the uh, and the government of Malta wanted to do something progressive. So it put, slipped this through. And in Ireland, self-ID went through with the um, gay marriage. 
So, but what what the trans pledge did, and I against the probably against the interests of the of the groups that support its ideas, is it put everything into the public square to be discussed. You know, it made as with Joe Swinson, who and she, who had to. You know, journalists had the right on the BBC to ask them questions about it, just as now people have got the right to ask Lisa Nandy why um, rapists go in women's prisons. They've also got the right to ask Dawn Butler why she believes that a baby is born without biological sex. I mean, personal level, Janice, do you mind uh, all the grief that you get? You, You say you're encouraged by the support you get, but people are pretty abusive about you. Do, do you, does it hurt? Do you uh, wish you'd never wandered into it? Yeah. I, I didn't see any alternative. I really don't see any alternative because what was happening was women's rights that have been fought for for generations. You know, really basic things that, you know, if, if, if women were to have a public life... They needed public toilets that were protected. That you know, back in the Victorian days, if women wanted to have sports where they could win, they had female category sports. These things were brought in for a reason to help women actually exist. And you know, and for these things to be dismantled, and people be so not only for women to be told um, we're dismantling your things, but to be told if you even object to it you are hateful I just thought I, I had to speak I mean it just and I know a lot of women feel like this we have to say something it's really important that we speak out on it I God I would so far rather not be talking about this there are so many mm. unresolved things that women need you know when the, the latest murders of women statistics came out they'd gone up 10% you know domestic violence is still a massive issue in this country and I would much rather we focused on these things rather than whether uh, women are allowed to have their own toilets and changing rooms anymore. It seems like what really upsets me about it is this is is projected as progress. And it's not progress. It's a backlash pretending to be progress. Well, I really hope we can have you on again soon to talk about some of those other issues instead. <laughs> um, if you do want to pick holes with anything we've said, do email uh, redbox at thetimes.co.uk or find us on Twitter at timesredbox. But for now, my huge thanks to uh, Matthew Paris, Janice Turner and Jason Stein. And you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.